Well, this morning, I want to invite you to take your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19 with me. And we're going to dig into an Old Testament text that's going to give us the next message on our new series that we've entitled A Big Deal. Last week, we launched into this series, and we're looking at several of uh, the opportunities that God used in Scripture to teach about the small things that are often emphasized as being insignificant, but how God used them to do something greater, something big. And during this teaching series, we will look at some of those very small yet crucial elements that God gives us throughout his scripture. And uh, last week, we had an incredible start as we looked at a very insignificant lad with his lunch. This boy brought his five barley loaves and two fishes to Jesus to feed the multitude of people. In that passage, we saw there were 5,000 men. There would have been many others that have men and ch- or women and children that would have been there. And so Jesus was looking to feed this group of 10 to 15,000 people. They had no resources except for the five loaves and two fish. And Jesus took it, blessed it, broke it, and served it, and performed a great miracle that day with the small and insignificant. So in the text today, as we find in the Old Testament, this story of a man by the name of Elijah. For some in here, the story of Elijah is a familiar one, but let's kind of set the stage for where our text will be today, helping you to understand a little bit about who he is, where he's come from, and and why he's in this condition that he's in in the text. So his resume is quite impressive. First of all, he was a prophet of God. If you look back at 1 Kings chapter number 17, verse number 1, he shows up on the scene, he walks into the palace and proclaims to the king that a drought is going to happen. He looks at King Ahab and says God's bringing a drought to the land. In verses 2 through 7 of that same chapter, we see that that Elijah runs to the brook Cherith and God is going to provide for his needs of food and water. And he's going to provide food through the birds, through the ravens. And this was going to happen all during the drought. Now later in that chapter, we find that God provides a miracle of food that Elijah is going to partake of when he's at the widow's home taking of the the food and the oil that just keeps coming over and over again because of a step of faith on the part of the widow. But then tragedy happens, and the widow's son dies, and God uses Elijah to bring the boy back to life from the dead in the end of chapter number 17. Then we move into chapter number 18, and we find that Elijah is getting ready to square off on top of Mount Carmel with 400 false prophets of Baal. This was an intense moment in his ministry, and and as he is preparing for what God is going to do, he douses the altar and puts water all over the sacrifice and all through the altar that was given and said a simple prayer, and the miracle of God happened as God sent fire down from heaven, consumed the wet-soaking altar and offering. So then verse number 40, at the conclusion of such an amazing high-peak story, is that Elijah commands for all 400 false prophets of Baal to be killed. And then verse number 41, he goes back into the palace, announces to the king that the three-year drought is about to end and God is sending rain. So here's a man of boldness, courage, resilience. This is a man that God is using firsthand. The stories are told of Elijah, and we are amazed one after another. There's nothing through chapter 17 and 18 that would give us any sense that this is a man that is unstable or a man that is going to be broken at his core. We even find at the end of chapter number 18 that we see the humility and power of his prayers. In verse 43, we watch his obedience and submission to God's direction as he is being led and used by God in mighty ways. And then in verse 46, it wraps it all up by telling us that 
the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. So there's a lot of amazing truths about this man. And then all of a sudden in chapter number 19, this huge transition takes place. We would say at the end of chapter 18, life was good. Actually, we would say that life is awesome for Elijah. There is nothing going wrong until in verse number one of chapter number 19, he really loses his way pretty drastically. Chapter 19 tells us that everything changes. He was coming from a mountaintop moment and sunk deep into the very depths of a valley, not knowing which way was up. This all happened in a matter of moments. He finds out that the queen wants him dead. He's killed 400 false prophets of Baal. Those were the queen's main men. And now she is upset and says, your life tomorrow will be just like these false prophets of Baal. So he runs for his life and he finds himself all alone. And then in verse number four of chapter number 19, he cries out to God and says, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. <laughs> he requests for God to take him away, take his life. He wanted to be done. We back up from that and say, whoa, three, four minutes of just wandering through 17, 18, and now 19, this, this took a pretty drastic turn. And the reality is, as many of us can relate with Elijah, one day, life seems really good or awesome. Everything's going very well. It's good. It's grand. And then the next thing you know, you're running for your life. You turn to other sources for comfort and assurance, only to find that they are there for a little while and then empty very soon after. We look to other sources of comfort and assurance, and sometimes they become addictions in our life. Sometimes they become crutches. Sometimes they become pleasurable elements that just help us to escape for just a moment. And sometimes we participate in a blame game on everyone and everything else as the fault of why I'm going through this. Sometimes we begin to doubt our value, our purpose, or even why we are living. And so you end up saying, just like Elijah, God, would you just take me now? I'm useless. It's pointless. There is nothing left. Would you just remove me? Take me now. But we have to remember that this discouragement and despair can be a very powerful force in our lives. Our heart is deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah put it, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And our emotions and the very roots of who we are based on our feelings can cause us to become unstable in a matter of moments when our eyes are taken off of what God has done and what God wants to continue to do. And so in our text today in 1 Kings 19, we jump all the way to verse number 9. We know that Elijah is desperate and he's in despair. In verse 4, he has cried out for God to take him, take his life now, and then his self-pity party continues. Verse number 9, he came thither into a cave, and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. They've thrown down thine altars. They've slain thy prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth. And stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. 
but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle, he went out and stood in the entering into the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am alone left, and seek my life to take it away. They seek my life. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be the king over Israel. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Here it is. Yet I have left my 7,000 in Israel all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him or praised him. Back in verse number 12, God was not in the powerful winds, God was not in the earthquake, God was not in the fire, but a still, small voice. This morning we look at this text, the power of a small, still voice. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father, we ask you now that you will guide our thoughts together Lord, I am excited to dissect this story. The story of Elijah has always been a a fascinating one through the years of study. A man that seemed to have it all going well for him. Somebody who seemed to be on, on cloud nine, top of the mountain, defeating the false prophets of Baal. People were amazed. Eyes were turning to God. And then he got some threatening news that the queen wanted to take his life. So we see a real man here. We see a man that's going through very emotional roller coasters, a very fickle man, but Lord, we can relate to him. So today, as we sit here and we listen and we open our hearts to the text and to your message, Lord, would you work in our hearts? I don't know the story sitting in the chair and pew. I don't know the past and the histories, but Lord, you do. You know their story. And so I would ask that you would use this time together of study to be life-shaping and life-changing. And so direct us now as we dig in, in Jesus' name, amen. Elijah, in verse number 8, had gone to Mount Horeb. God did not want him to stay put, and so he gave him 40 days to take off and to journey, and he provided for his needs so that he could get to a place where God was going to give him isolation, seclusion, and a place where he could work on his heart. And so it's been those 40 days since the queen has given this threat to take his life. And in verse number 9, we see that God appears to Elijah and asks him a very pointed question. What are you doing here? It's not as if God was confused. What are you doing at Mount Horeb? For God was the one who sent him. But the question was asked in such a way that would bring some reasoning to Elijah's mind. The question is often asked of us, not for us to inform God on why we're doing what we're doing or what our thoughts really are, but it does ask us the question for us to help with our own reasoning so that we do not come to dangerous conclusions in our lives where we have wandered away from where God wants us to be. This was not a question of where, you, where are you physically, this was a question of where are you spiritually. And Elijah, in verse number 10, is going to respond with his own reasoning. He's going to give his own answer. He's going to give out, rattle off his own bittered heart. We find ourselves, even many times, when we're trying to answer God, 
We find we use our own reasoning. Instead of submitting ourselves to the Spirit's leading and submitting ourselves to God's control, our own reasoning sometimes shows what's really deep in our hearts, our emotions, our passions, our spirit of vengeance, or our, our sense of justice that we want on somebody else. And so interestingly, Elijah is going to give God the same response in verse number 14 after he goes now to a cave, and God's going to even ask him yet the same question. Now, we know that all through Scripture, God uses, um, uses force of nature, forces of nature to get a hold of attentions or actions of his revelation or actions of his, um, of his work in people or his, his acts of judgment. We know that God uses earthquakes, he uses storms, he uses powerful winds, he uses fire and floods, and God would use these elements of nature to get a hold of people's attention with his revelation or with his judgment. But here God is not going to use the the elements of nature, he's not going to use the big things that we would think are going to get a hold of people's attention, but God is going to rather use something that is drastically different from that. The verse 12 tells us that he uses the still, small voice. Now, some of you in here have experienced that before, the still, small voice of God. You know what it's like. You know how you, what it feels like. And it's when God speaks to your conscience, he illuminates your mind and he stirs a resolve in you. And it's not thunder and lightning that strikes you down. It is that small, still voice that you hear. It is that whisper from God The verse here with that still small voice is actually a a gentle whisper as he spoke to the prophet. And you would say that Elijah learned that day something of how God works in many ways through quiet ways. So the power of the small still voice is here, and in verse 13 and 14, we find that the power was, was bringing a proper viewpoint to Elijah. Now, Elijah's skewed right now. He has experienced some amazing works of God. He has encountered a lot of miracles that God has done firsthand in the life of Elijah. But now as he is in a moment of despair, running for his life and secluded and all alone, he just wants to give it up. But God is going to use that still small voice to bring a proper viewpoint to Elijah. God asks the question, what are you doing here? And this is an individual check Uh, on our heart and our position before God. The question contains an indirect rebuke. When God asks us in the quiet, gentle whisper in our own lives, what are you doing here? What are you doing? Why are you going this way? What What are you thinking at this moment? When that quiet voice stirs in our heart, it brings that indirect rebuke while also bringing us to a place of confession for our, our fears and our doubts. That's where Elijah is. Fearful, doubtful, forgetful, refusing to remember what God has already done in his life, refusing to bring to an account how God has protected him, provided for him, and done amazing works through him. And we often find ourselves experiencing this thing in our life as well. 
a moment where we experience the work of God in our life to really propel and push us forward. But then when the bad days come, we quickly forget of God's provisions, God's power, and God's protection in our life. We forget the God moments, the celebrations, and the stories, because all that's important to us right now is this very moment and how I will respond at this moment. And so we ask the question, what is Elijah so upset about? Does he have reason to be upset? And we'd say, well, well, yeah, I mean, he's running for his life. That's an emotional problem. He thinks that the queen is going to use all forces to track him down and to kill him. I mean, that's not a very settling thought at night to lay me down in peace. I mean, this is unstable ground for him. But also, as Elijah would say in verse 10 and verse 14, in his response to God, he complained that the Israelites had abandoned God. He is, uh, is saying that he is the last prophet of the Lord. So let's, let's do a little fact check here with Elijah. The fact check that we see is, was Israel struggling with apostasy? Yes, they were. Chapter 18, verse number 18. Israel as a whole was struggling with abandoning God. They were struggling with this non-caring attitude. Apostasy was saturating the people of Israel. So yeah, fact number one, yes, you're right, Elijah. Fact number two, was there a a desecration of sacred places and the martyrdom of the Lord's uh, people, the Lord's prophets? Yes, again, chapter 18, verse number 13, there there were altars that were being um, thrown down. There were sacred places of worship that were being destroyed. and, And there was a martyrdom of the Lord's prophets and people who were following the name of God. So yes, Elijah, you're right on this. But was Elijah really all alone and the only one looking to do right by God? The answer is no. We read it in our text in verse number 18 that God is going to reassure him that there are thousands more who are geared up, taking the mantle, and ready to press forward, ready to be on the team, ready to be led, and ready to go. And so Elijah here is going to get a proper viewpoint from God And as God's prophet, he is going to be steered better in the right way. So Elijah realizes that he, like Moses, could not look at God without being killed. And so he covers his face and he approaches God with reverence and expectation to hear him. And in verse number 15, the still small voice gives him a proper direction. The time has come. There is no more pity party for Elijah. There's going to be no more isolation, no more thinking you are alone in all of this. So God tells him to go. And we all know that God's direction is best, don't we? We know that when God says go, we're going to be okay if we'll just go. Jesus called out to Peter to come in the the middle of the, the Sea of Galilee. And he took that step out on the water. There were times when Jesus would look at his disciples and say, follow me. And we know that when we follow the path of God, we're going to find safety and security. But also understand that this proper direction or this new movement that God was sending Elijah was not going to be easy peasy, okay? Now, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and so my vocabulary is a little different right now. But in 10 years, bear with me, easy peasy may not be a word I use anymore, all right? But Elijah was not finding an easy peasy pathway. Because what was taking place is this was going to involve a return to the scene of action. The desert of Damascus was not going to be a refuge for Elijah. This would be a place where he would encounter some of the things that he's complaining to God about. Where he will find that Israel is being attacked. Where he will find that people hate him and hate followers of God. And probably within the process of finding Hazael, 
This could mean that Elijah would travel to lands even outside of Israel, the, the safety zone, the comfort zone. But this is going to be a springboard for new tasks for Elijah. This was going to mean that Elijah would travel in places that God was going to lead him. Now, this past Wednesday, we studied from the psalmist David in Psalm 142. We looked at his spirit of saying that nobody cared. He looked uh, to the right hand and nobody was there to support him. And he, he looked and there was no man that cared for his soul. But his attention was drawn away from the people around him to realize that he really wasn't alone, that somebody greater did care, and that was God. And in verse number three, he highlighted and said, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest, you knew my path. Now we all relate to that. We all connect to that. Our thoughts become uh, heavily fogged by despair, turmoil, um, insecurities, inadequacies. And we think that we cannot take the next step because then our focus is not looking afar off beyond the turmoil. Our focus is all nearsighted to where all we can see is the problem right now. And the psalmist was saying that in the middle of all of that, in the middle of my overwhelming spirit within me, you already knew my direction. You knew my path. You knew my way. And he was finding great security in that. So Elijah is getting ready to have this new direction, and he is going to be sent off to a, a hard place. But Elijah would find great comfort in that, knowing that the path before him was God's will and God's direction. And so church family, guests, those who are here today, for all of us, the immediate step becomes the most difficult step until we take it and realize that these steps of faith God is going to be in and God is going to lead. It's not going to be, what, easy peasy, but it will be led by God. And so God's going to take Elijah. God took David. God led the disciples. God has taken the church age and led them step by step with these moments of faith that are very much a new direction, a proper direction. And there's a lot of um, hesitancy and there's a lot of fear in the middle of all of that. But God says, it's going to be okay. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 have been my life verses I have held on to since my sophomore year in high school. Because going through my high school years, it was, God, what is next? I have my life in front of me, and how will I live, and what should I do? And it was this trusting in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not unto your own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path, thy way, thy conduct, thy direction. And so we sit here today, and, and some of us are in turmoil. Some of us are battling with doubt and inadequacies. Some of us are, are struggling with pain and hurt. Circumstances have, have creeped up and fogged our mind. We're seeing nearsighted. We can't see afar off, and we're wondering what is next. And we just have to be willing to hear the still, small voice that not only gives us a proper perspective or viewpoint, but also pushes us to a proper direction. And then in verse number 16 and 17, this amazing comfort that we find when we fully trust that God knows what is best for us, then we're willing to take on this proper mission that God gives. 
In verse 16 and 17, Jehu, he's already said in verse 15, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazel to be the, the king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Snapchat, of Abel Mahola, I've been practicing these words all morning in my office. I just, sometimes that's why I skip verses like this, all right? I give you main names, and if you can do better, I will give you the mic, all right? You can read the text next week, all right? So you get the idea of what's going on, okay? Don't you sometimes wish that God's will worked this way in your life? I mean, look at this. Elijah is so blessed here. He basically says, uh, I'm going to lay out your plan. God told Elijah, here's what I want you to do. Here's where to go. And here's when to do it. And it's like, wow, okay. Here is my mission. And sometimes we get flustered because we don't hear the still small voice of God giving us our proper mission. And it's not that the still small voice isn't speaking, it's that our lives are too busy and consumed by outside distractions that we cannot hear the voice. We're looking for the earthquake to rattle our cage. We're looking for the strong winds to come and get a hold of our attention. We're hoping for big flames of fire to say, okay, this is my burning bush moment. But God says it's not always going to be that way. He says, sometimes you just need to be still and know that I am God. Would you rest for a moment? Would you be quiet for a second and listen for the still, small voice, the gentle whisper that I'm sending your way? And so he needed a task to focus on so that he could avoid this excessive introspection. He was being so consumed by his, his fear and his discouragement that he became so desperate that wanted to die instead of to be used by God to do even greater things. Now, God was going to do greater things with Elijah, but he could not see it at this moment. Sometimes in the middle of our circumstances, we don't see what God wants to do even greater. Have you come to those moments where you're like, if I could just get on track, if I could just live more like Jesus Christ if I could just humble myself more, if I could just be moldable and flexible, if I would just open myself to God, I know he has greater things for me. I know he wants to do amazing things through my life and impact people with the gospel. I know that there are tasks out there that I can't understand or see. I just know that God has it. And this proper mission that God wants to steer us on comes when we will be like Elijah and quit being so introspective and quit trying to, trying to get in all of your doubts and inadequacies and, and finding yourself using that as your, your pool of despair and get out of it and say, God, I'm ready. Show me and lead me to take those steps of faith. There was William Wilberforce was an English politician back in the 1700s, and he was known as a leader of the movement to stop the slave trade in England. He was a native of Kingston uh, upon Hull in Yorkshire, and he began his political career in 1780. Eventually, he became a member of the parliament for Yorkshire. So knowing who William Wilberforce was, John Wesley wrote a letter on his deathbed to William Wilberforce to encourage him in his prolonged fight against slavery in England. Here's what Wesley wrote. 
Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of religion of England. It is the scandal of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? So go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. You see, if God has given you a task, be not weary in well-doing. Don't fall prey to the opposition. You will find opposition both in man and supernatural force of the devil and his demons. They will oppose everything right that you try to do. What's sad is when the opposition happens within the church. But the reality is, is opposition will happen beyond the four walls of this building. And when we face opposition on mankind level, as well as on supernatural levels, we have to know that we cannot give up on the mission that God has sent us to do. For some of you, that mission means being a bold witness to your co-workers or your neighbors. For some of you, that means taking steps of faith as you're called into full-time Christian service or full-time ministry work. For some of you, that is steps of sacrifice and steps of faith. Only you know your heart. Only you know what the still, small voice is saying to you. But it will try so desperately to be drowned out by the loud, blaring noise of the world and the culture around us. And so push it out and be still long enough to hear that voice. Verse number 18 concludes the thoughts here to Elijah. And he gets a proper appreciation. Because in verse 18, God has given him a new task, a new mission, and now God is going to say, Yet... I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed or praised false prophet Baal. So God brought one encouragement after another to Elijah that day. You know, folks, when when God does that in our life, we need to be willing to, to journal it. Natalie was talking to her mom yesterday and was being reminded of of steps of faith, and then moments of God's direction and how God works and how God leads, and, uh, and to write down those God moments, to journal them, to make sure that you can bring those to an account because there are going to be bad days. And when those bad days come, you want to be able to be refreshed in the memory of God's blessing. Uh, this past week, uh, Stephen Johansson was in my office. He told me about a meeting he had with Mayor Mutz Mayor Mutz opened his drawer and showed him a stack of cards that he had received from Parkway Baptist Church. And he said, often I look at these cards to be reminded that there are people praying for me and who love me and care for me. Those are the types of things that God uses. Thursday, I received an email back from Rick and Sherry Moeller. Several of us on Wednesday night, as Nate Calvert gave the update, he gave us this opportunity right in the middle of service to get out our digital devices and send them a quick email. And uh, I think 15, 20 of us sent him an email. He sent me back the next day and just said, we have never been told of one of our supporting churches that people were praying for us in that way. He said, we're saving these emails. We're coming to them often. 
He said, we're in a discouraging place. We're at a discouraging time in ministry. And he said, those prayers and those emails of encouragement came at the right time. So folks, we have to remember that as God leads through his blessings to journal those, document those, and find us coming back to those remembrances so that it'll boost us forward. If Elijah could have taken his backpack off that day, sitting under the juniper tree, and would have spent time unrailing, unrolling his scroll so that he could look back and say, well, I remember that day sitting at the brook Cherith, and some blackbird flew in with some food to me, and I was like, am I supposed to eat that? <laughs> yep, I'm going to eat that. He reads through his scroll, and he remembers the time he, told, he approached the widow about giving the last of her supplies to feed him and her and her child. And she did that. And he remembers how God miraculously kept providing more substance and more food. As he reads through his scroll, he could have read about the encounter on Mount Carmel, about how the 400 false prophets of Baal would do everything they could in their own power to get their God to send fire from heaven, to speak, to do something. They would dance, they would yell, they would cry, they would cut, they would do tons of things in the name of their false God. And he could have read in his scroll about how he backed up, doused the altar with tons of water, said a simple prayer, and fire came from heaven. You see, all of those Elijah really encountered and experienced. It was not told by somebody else. It was his life that had been changed and shaped by God's work. And if we are going to have a proper appreciation, we're going to find ourselves journaling, documenting, and coming back to what God has done in our life. Moments where we as a family were desperate in prayer and God provided. Little steps of faith where God answered prayer. Bold movements that God blessed. And we'll find God doing amazing things. Elijah needed a friend and so God was going to send him to the next level of encouragement. And sent Elijah to anoint Elisha to be the next prophet. And this friend, this, this core of this compliment before God was, was that, Elijah, you're not going to be alone in this. This friend was that God would, would let him know that there was a man ready to learn from the great prophet and be his disciple and to be his companion. Elijah, your life is not over. You need to go pour into somebody else. Quit being so selfish. Quit being so self-consumed. Get rid of the self-pity. And realize there are people all around you that are ready for you to be their friend and to be their leader. Elijah saw that, but not only a friend, but God gave him hope. And since Elisha would be raised up as a successor to Elijah's prophetic office, Elijah then knew that this work would continue even after his death. And so on top of all of this, God told Elijah, there's 7,000 more who did not worship Baal, who are full of encouragement and ready and eager. They just need a man of God to lead them, to rally them, and to pour into them. This, these things assured Elijah that he was not alone and that his work as a prophet would indeed be fruitful. Now today, as we finish up, I would be a fool not to let you know that there is a still small voice that cries out, I love you. The God and creator of this world loves each and every one of us. And you may say, well, if God were real or if God did really love me, why do I face this? Or why am I going through this? Or why do I feel this way? 
If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, his son, with God, then you are without hope. You are living your life on your own admission. You're living life in your own power. You're trying to figure out everything on your own. But here's what is the absolute truth, is that this life here on earth is short, but there's an eternity waiting for us. And that eternity will last forever, and there is either going to be an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father to heaven but by me or through me. Jesus Christ is the only way, not our works. Jesus Christ is the only truth, not any man-made religion. Jesus Christ is the only life, nothing that we find as inspiration within ourselves. So when Jesus says, I am the way, you will either deny that or you will be willing to accept that. Now, we live in a culture where everybody wants to be humanistic and everybody wants to decide things on their own. And so if you try to tell somebody that these pews are blue, they will try to dis discourage that or they'll try to defeat that claim because they don't want the absolute truth to tell you that these pews are blue. Now, where things can become very subjective is the fact that somebody may sit in it and say, wow, this is soft and very comfortable. Okay, that's very subjective and very wrong, but that's still subjective, all right? Somebody else may sit in it and say, wow, these are hard and very uncomfortable. Both have their own opinion and both may be a reality based on what they have evaluated and how they feel. But what they cannot argue based on comfort or discomfort, they cannot argue the fact that they are blue or not blue. That is absolute truth. So if you want to try to claim that there is another way, there's no argument there. It's not a matter of comfort or discomfort. It's a matter of what is true. Now, we as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers of God, we hold in our hand as the absolute truth, God's word that has been preserved through centuries to where we can hold in our hand. And that's where we're reminded in the truth that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But the greatest part of all of that is that God has provided and given a gift to us. And that gift is eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, that gift does not come just by word of mouth. That gift comes by an action. That action was Jesus dying for our sins. And when Jesus paid the penalty and price for our sins, he gave it all. He shed his blood and he paid the price for us. So that today, in the 21st century, we can believe in a God who created the world and his son Jesus, who he sent to earth to live a sinless life so that he could be the substitute in our place. So today it comes down to this. Either you grab a hold of that and believe it and find your hope and comfort in that very fact that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, or as a seeker, you still will rebel against it. And you will say, there is no part of me that wants any part of that. And that breaks my heart to hear. So today becomes the opportunity for you to receive Jesus Christ as your very own Savior, a Jesus who loves you and gave his life for you. And so in just a few moments, I will invite you to learn more about that wonderful truth. Let me remind you with this last thought. For by grace are ye saved through faith. <laughs> so you say, well, this religious thing is just a bunch of hogwash and it's a bunch of far-fetched belief system. We're taking steps of faith to believe in the absolute truth and that there is a real God. It's a step of faith. But that step of faith has so much more security than believing in some other way that man has developed. And so today, with great confidence, I can say that my life has been drastically changed because Jesus saved me. 
And you're sitting among people in here whose lives have been drastically changed. And when I say drastically changed, I'm not talking about a five-year-old who got saved and no longer do I steal pencils and erasers from my classmates. I'm talking about lives that were addicted to alcohol, to drugs, to pornography, to illicit sex. Lives that were consumed within themselves. Lives that were hopeless and in despair. Lives that wanted to be ended until they met Jesus. And their life was drastically changed. And no longer are they bound by the chains of addiction or no longer are they in bondage to sin for they have found victory in Jesus Christ. And that victory can be yours today by grace, God's grace, through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. To those in here who have been changed, transformed, and living in the image of Jesus Christ today, would you find yourself being willing to hear the still, small voice? It may mean that you have to get out of your pity zone. It may mean that you have to get back up on your feet. It may mean that you become alert, far from the near sight to the far off, to see, God, what's the direction and mission you want to send me? Would you be willing today for God to use the small to make a big deal in your life? God, I want to ask you today to use this message that you have given us to work in our hearts. I don't know where we are spiritually. I don't know where we are on life's journey. But God, you know each and every person in here, and you know their heart. And I know that you want a personal relationship with each and every one of us. Lord, there is nothing that can separate us from your love. That love that you have given to us will overcome the deepest sea and the highest peaks. That love will go through every obstacle. There is no one and nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So may these dear people today sense that, see that, and want that even more. Lord, will we eliminate the distractions that cause us to become so heavy-weighted and heavy-burdened, distracted? Will we give those over to you today? So Lord, in these moments together, would you use this time for your honor and glory in Jesus' name? Amen.